and very, very dangerous. If you spotty sense, you know, I was like, oh, something's off. And I'm just like, man, I'm waiting to hear something, you know. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the 21st episode. Hit that big 2-0 last episode. Welcome to the 21st episode of the War Cry Podcast. I'm your host, Jehola Tiger. You know, we're going to get right to it. So this episode, um, kind of been thinking about doing something kind of paranormal. Yeah, and something kind of old school, too. It's a pretty well-known case, um, but today we're going to be talking about the Amityville house. And the murders, the paranormal stuff, all the good stuff. So, this story doesn't begin on the night of November 13th, 1974. Uh, it technically begins before that. So, the DeFeo family uh, moved from an apartment in New York City um, to this really nice house. Like, this house is it's kind of creepy now, obviously, now that you... You you see it now for, you know, the horror movies and all that stuff. But this house is a beautiful house. And, you know, they moved there in 1974. Um, and it's about 30 miles outside of New York City, um, called Amityville, obviously. Um, some backstory on the, on the family. So, allegedly, the DeFeo family was connected to a few mob families. Um, they are escaping me at this time. Uh, which mob families they were they were connected to, but the but the mother was connected to a family, and the father DeFeo was Ronnie uh, Senior was connected, and you know kind of some you know I guess I'd say interest you know interesting facts or interesting kind of alleged facts uh, that were they were kind of running away and that that uh, there was some business that needed to be handled in Amity, um, and so Ronnie Senior worked at a, a car lot um and they were thinking that that was kind of what uh that he was working there basically to be the bookkeeper and like the accountant and that he basically was kind of skimming the books essentially and you know he wasn't i, I don't want to how to say this people outside the family really enjoyed uh ronnie ronnie senior thought he was a nice guy thought he was a you know a good husband hard working but as the facts come out over the, you know, the course of history and the course of time, you know, that kind of wasn't really the case. Um, Ronnie Sr. was real abusive to his to his kids, uh, mainly his, uh, you know, Ronnie Jr. Um, real kind of, you know, abusive, beating him up, you know, calling him names, making him feel, you know, unloved and things like that. And, you know, over time... And this is, you know, kind of how this, you know, plays out. On the night of November 13th, um, Ronnie J. DeFeo Jr. took a Marlin uh, rifle and basically killed his family. Shot them all in the back while they were sleeping. And that's the start of this crazy journey um, of the Amityville house. Um, so basically 13 months after this, mur- after this uh, murder, um, the Lutz family moved in and they purchased the home. For like eighty thousand, like dang, you buying that beautiful house for eighty thousand? Shoot, haunted or not, we we rolling in. No. <laughs> um, but they bought it for about eighty thousand, and truth be told, they really only only lived there for about twenty eight days before you know moving out and leaving. 
And the Lutz family is where all this kind of begins. You know, rumors had kind of circled, circled that maybe um, Ronnie Jr. Defe or Ronnie uh, DeFeo Jr. might have been crazy. He might have lost his mind. The demons, you know, took him and or was making him crazy. Even DeFeo's lawyer, um, I think it was William Webster, even he uh, was trying to say that the devil made him do it. He was trying to, you know, plead that case to the to the jury and all that good stuff um, And during the course of the, the trial. And one thing I think is fine is, you know, kind of interesting is, that, like, I don't I would believe that, like, that case that ever, you know, I think it's only been one at that time, you know, that the devil made me do it type of case. And so... Mm -hmm. That was kind of the narrative going into that that trial is that he lost his mind. He heard voices, you know, things was kind of going crazy. So as we roll on to the Lutzes, they obviously, you know, purchased the home, you know, 13 months after trials going on. And one thing that was, you know, I thought was kind of interesting about the Lutz family is that George Lutz, he was, well, George and um, I think her name was Catherine. I can't not ex exactly remember this lady. Oh, Kathy. I just remembered it. Um, they kind of dabbled in some things. Um, and they kind of was doing, you know, little kind things on the side when it came to the occult. And, you know, one person, I was watching a documentary over this, and they described it as like trans, not tra I almost said transhumanism, but that that's a totally different thing. It was like transmeditative state or something crazy like that, which basically means you meditate until you go into a different astral plane mentally. And they would do those things in the house. Well, one thing that another thing, too, that they didn't do is they didn't get rid of the beds. They had the same beds. So all the furniture, every carpet, wallpaper, they bought the house as is. Like obviously, the the. the the crime scene was was cleaned up, but they bought everything as is. And that's another kind of thing I thought those people kind of crazy. You know, maybe they're kind of borderline, you know, oh, we're fans of the case. You know, we want this house and, you know, maybe we want to, you know, capitalize on this. Well, some of the abnormal things that was happening over the course of these 28 days they lived in that house was that George would wake up at like 3.15 every morning. And, uh, you know, that was about the time when Ronnie, uh, you know, carried out those that, his crime that he committed. Another kind of strange thing was they would see green slime oozing out of the walls and keyholes and, diff you know, different kind of cold spots, like super freezing cold spots in, in areas of the house. Strange odors, flies, basically on the windowsills. Now, I'm going to keep it a buck. If I seen that in my house... I'm not staying 28 days. You got your dang mind. I, I'm I'm out. I'm I'm deuces. I'm bringing someone in. You know we gonna we gonna smoke that house out. Like that house the house is gonna be so smoked out. There's gonna be like inhalation. I want to have inhalation from that that good <laughs> the good medicine that good uh, cedar smoke. You know sage smoke. I want I want to have borderline lung cancer by the time I'm done. If I seen green ooze oozing out of you know the walls and keyholes, <laughs> not playing with that. But the Lutzes, you know, they dealt with that and they had some like you know, strange things going on. You know, George wasn't sleeping, and you know he ends up uh, they end up calling a priest to bless the house. And the priest was in this one room, and I cannot 
for the life of me remember, I think it might have been the, uh, the little kid's room, um, the two boys that were shot. And he was sitting there blessing the house, went through the entire house, and he ends up like getting this kind of this something in his ear, and he and it basically says "get out," like it tells him to get out. And as he's leaving, he tells the family that, "Hey, I'm gonna let y'all know, don't sleep in that room right there." And left. And you know, years, you know, I think two years later, he ends up uh, in like nineteen, I think it was like nineteen seventy six. He goes on TV, didn't want to be, you know, didn't want to be named or nothing, but ends up, you know, basically telling people that, "Hey, like." This really happened. There's something in the house, and these people are crazy for living there. So they had that priest come through, you know, kind of, I guess, more weird stuff that I'm, I'm kind of coming to mind. Um, a nearby garage door opening and closing. They see, like, uh, like a nearby like a garage door, which kind of, you know, I think that it's kind of weird. Um, they'd have like invisible knives knocking like down, like, like, like they'd have like a, some type of invisible type thing would be, you know, knocking knives down into the kitchen. Dang. They said they saw a pig like creature with red eyes. Um, I guess George and his son, Daniel, I guess saw it from the window. And one of the craziest things that George mentioned and, and Kathy, I guess she really maybe didn't even remember this was that Kathy would levitate. Like she was levitating out of bed. And they both saw both their sons, Daniel and Christopher, levitating as well. Damn, if I saw that, I'd be like, nah, nah. It's kind of crazy. So they left 28 days out of there. I would have been gone in two nights, maybe one, maybe not even a full night. But uh, <laughs> y'all like, man, how he's, how's he going to go on these ghost adventures if can't even stay a night at the at the Amityville Horror. No, why? Well, you can catch me, you can catch me outside, man. I'll be in the, you know, I'll be watching the video cameras. No, but <laughs> so as you know, as that happens, you know, the Lutzes go out and they tell everybody. They start doing interviews, and one thing too that I thought was kind of interesting: people were not believing them at first. Like, kind of, oh, you kind of losing your mind, you know, y'all crazy. Y'all staying in a house with the same exact stuff as the people that were murdered in there. And so they took a lie detector test and they passed. And, uh, which in that day and time, the lie detector test was like, a, you know, if you took one of those and you passed, you definitely telling the truth. So that's kind of what they was thinking back then. Well, you know, they ended up, you know, I guess they, 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 they've always had like some legal and some financial issues. And, you know, with obviously with creating a fantastic type of story about all these crazy things happening, um, you know, might bring in some money or two, you know. But they end up having different um, people coming out. Um, one of the, 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 the known and the spotlighted people that showed up was uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren. They showed up. And now this is kind of. I think it's kind of hype and kind of cap, but she said this is like the closest she's ever felt to hell. And as she walked in that house, you know, Ed and Lorraine Warren had all these different types of investigations. And, you know, I think here in 2023, early 2023, their validity, their validity, <clears throat> excuse me, their validity has come, has come into question. So, you know, we can take it with a grain of salt. Um, but she had empathy or not empath. Um, ability to sense spirits and see things that people couldn't. And, 
And, uh, you know, she went and did a full thing. You know, she said this place is haunted. It's, it's the gateway to hell. It's basically hell. Um, they had uh, Hans Holter. Like, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Um, Hans, yeah, Hans Holter. Anyways, he comes and he has this, uh, and I cannot think of the name of this person. Anyways, where people, where spirits could talk through him is, is what they, he brought one, one of his ladies he trusted. And, you know, he said, you know, he came up with his conclusion that this place is definitely haunted. There's spirits here. There's something going on. We don't know, you know, we don't know what it is, but something's going on. Um, because what he liked to do different than Ed and Lorraine, they would work off straight feelings and they would just kind of, you know, make sure everything was what it was in terms of what they believed and more of a Christian side too. I know Ed was like a, a Catholic, um, historian or of those some type of nature but he uh hans holter holter worked off science and the metaphysical and what he did is he had all these tools that like basically a modern day paranormal team would have and one and one kind of crazy thing that they caught and this is wasn't really made public until like you know years later was they caught a picture of a boy with shiny eyes at the second level kind of next to the staircase. I thought that was kind of a crazy picture because in that day and time, it's hard to Photoshop stuff unless you planned it out and you really like, you needed to know, you know, kind of what's, you know, what, like in terms of like photography, it's hard to do that. And so I thought that was really interesting part of those investigations. Uh, I know the news teams went out and they, you know, they filmed and basically documented every aspect of these, uh, these investigation they thought was very mesmerizing, um, but you know they ended up. Documentary I watched they ended up interviewing some of those uh, reporters, and they didn't really you know feel anything. But you know who knows? The one of the camera guys I guess basically had like a basically stroked out and like fell you know down some stairs, and I guess they were saying, "Oh, it's the spirits, the spirits," and you know they really hyped it up. Uh, Ed and Lorraine, and then some other people that were there. So the jury was still out, and, and I guess it kind of made the narrative of this place being the most haunted place in America kind of drive forward. Um, but there was also some kind of pushback. So William Weber, I might have mentioned him before, he was the Lutz's former, or he was their lawyer, and they fell out you know, over some money. And in 1979, he comes out and says that all three of them came with a story um, over many bottles of wine and he you know in the way that William Weber talks you know I kind of watched his interview of him he's like kind of real he reminded me of Paul Heyman from WWE I don't know why but like he said it in a way he's like yeah we got he's like we came up with this story over not just one not just two but three bottles of wine and so like that's kind of way he said it and so you know people uh you know, they always, you know, were kind of at the Lutzes because they're making, you know, decent money doing this. Well, come to find out, at the the whole thing, they only made like $200,000 over this whole thing, over millions and millions and millions of dollars that were spent and basically earned off their story. Now, the book was released by Jan Anson, I believe was the name, detailing the entire um and so it was the original book, um, and then they made the movie, obviously, after that. And so 
you know, that book made millions of or made thousands and thousands of dollars. The movies made millions of dollars, and the, and you know the Lutzes didn't make any of that money. Um, but the money, the, the kind of the issue they're having with William Weber is that he maybe was pocketing a lot of that money, and so. From the Lutz's side of this, the son, Daniel, who kind of, you know, he lived, you know, after this thing, you know, or after this, this 28 days of living there and going through all the public scrutiny and, you know, all the public kind of coming and goings, basically claimed that this house ruined his life and he continues to have nightmares of this house. You know, I think it's kind of crazy that... We can't, you know, we, we, you know, it's, it's basically a true crime story, but it's also mixed in with paranormal because at the end of the day, you truly don't know. Like, we don't know what happened in that house. And, you know, for us to kind of take a look back, you know, years later, especially me being years later, it's just kind of interesting to see, you know, both sides of it. Um, one thing that was kind of crazy, um, about, um, kind of the ending, I guess, to wrap this whole story up is, you know, Ron Jr., the one that was in prison for the murders, um, actually passed away, I believe, in 2019, 2020, and somewhere in the last couple of years, I, I know. Well, he did an interview in the, in the, in the kind of 90s, early, early, early to the if I can say it, geez, early 2000s. And, you know, he comes out and says, well, I'm not guilty for this. I didn't do this. I didn't kill my family. Um, he did admit to doing drugs and, and, and drinking that night, the night of the the murders. And his sister, who was 18 at the time, Dawn, she ended up coming down. This is his, this is down Ronnie Jr.'s story. This is his full confession. And he was like, I swear I put this on the Bible. Put it on the Bible. He was downstairs smoking, drinking, doing, I think he was on heroin at the time is what he said. Dawn, the 18-year-old, was tired. She goes, I'm tired of my our dad putting us down. I'm tired of being under his shadow and under his thumb. I cannot get away from him. I want to be free, and I need your help. So Dawn brings the gun down because the family had all types of guns, and, Ron, and uh, Ronnie Jr. had all these, you know, I guess his nickname was Butch, had all these guns. And so what he claims is that when he went upstairs, he was so... I guess out of it, he didn't hear the shots. But he went upstairs, and all his family was murdered. And when he went to open the door to the the, the little the girl's room, Don had the gun pointed at him, and essentially, you know, threatened him if he didn't go along with this. Well, then he fought with her, kind of went back and forth, and he ended up getting the gun away and shooting her in the head. Now, in the court case. There is evidence that she actually had gunpowder on her fingers and underneath her fingertips, and that she that that her prints were on the gun, or that she had some involvement with the gun. Um, and in that day and time, with that certain rifle, there would be kind of residue in certain spots where you can tell when someone shot the gun. He, you know, went to his grave saying that you know I only I only he's I should only be serving manslaughter for killing my 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 sister who then killed, you know, in self-defense of my family. But, you know, we'll never know what truly happened. And there has, you know, in, in also in the police report, they did say that there's this has to be multi-weapon use. Uh, there was multi, They did see that there were two different weapons used uh, in terms of guns. So my, you know, my opinion of this story is I believe once bad energy, once negative energy enters into a situation, 
it's very hard to get rid of that stuff. And, you know, with you know, the oppression of the father with the, to the family, then to the crime of, you know, actually ending someone's life. And then also, too, you have drugs and alcohol involved. It's just a mix of just, it's, it's like a, how I say this, it's a very deep level of trauma there that the boards and, you know, the wood and everything in that house holds. Another thing, too, before I, for, I almost forgot this part. So Hans Holder, Holzer, went through some records and was look, doing some research. And that back, I guess, you know, back in the old days, you know, old ways, there was a chief, uh, native chief, Indian chief, who, you know, blessed that ground. And they did find that that house was buried on native Indian burial. They had, they had found bones, Native American artifacts. Um when they were at, during the time of building that house, and it was documented in those public records that they did find that. Now they didn't do anything with them, and they continued to build the house. Um, but he did find that, and that you know, on record there is a chief that said, you know, we will take every you know means necessary to make sure that this ground, if you if you uh, break it, that you know you're you know it will be you know we're, we're going to come after you, like we're going to be on a war path after you. And so that's another kind of interesting wrinkle with that. You know, anytime you know, like that's one thing we talked about on Unsolved Mysteries of the Reservation. You don't truly know what ground you're on because we weren't alive then. You know, you could be moving into a house. It was, you know, always said that you needed to, to make sure your house was taken care of. And one thing, too, that, that they didn't do and they didn't care to do was make sure that the house was taken care of. And But my opinion of this whole, this whole case and this whole... Um, paranormal activities i believe like i said once that negative energy was there um, the lutzes and their you know doing their trans meditational astroplaning type stuff i believe they brought those those entities there but i think they took them away when they left i believe they followed the lutzes having that all that energy in that one spot made those those entities stronger then they were able to do those things to the lutzes and then once the lutzes left as you know Entities can follow you. You can take them with you. That's what they did. Because, I mean, since since the Lutz have been in there, there hasn't been no, um, there's been no paranormal activity. So I think it was the Lutzes in there, and they're dealing with different kinds of, kind of, you know, things that they were doing um, with the occult and uh, with practicing, you know, <clears throat> that type of, you know, rituals and things like that. I believe that they were the ones that were being followed by the entities. And being in that house made them stronger because of the the, the, the negative energy that was there. Um, but I do believe, you know, I, I do believe in, you know, uh, in the paranormal. I do believe that, you know, this is not one of the most haunted houses, but I believe that it just happened to be the right people at the right time. And it just so happened that these people were doing these things and these entities were attached to them. And we get this one, this pretty crazy, but kind of sad story of of just you know terrible things happening to people um and you know, especially in amityville i guess they say it's a very nice you know well-to-do uh village is what they called it um but let me know what you guys think about the amityville uh case I guess you can, haunting whatever you want to call it i know they made a million movies and i will say to this day that ryan reynolds um his casting of the father might have been one of the worst movies i've ever seen um but they've made a million of those movies 
Um, let me know which one of those is your my, the original is my favorite. Um, but let me know what you guys think of of you know what happened to the family. And if you're on Spotify, let me know what topic uh, that you want to uh, have me discuss next. Um, we're looking at doing another part two for uh, mysterious disappearances. I've been kind of looking into some cases um, about park rangers, um, and I'll talk about park rangers who have went missing. Um, you know, in the line of duty, especially when it comes to being out in national forests and national parks. Um, but like I said, if you're on Spotify, let me know what you think about the episode and tell me what you want to hear next. Um, you can follow, you can find me on TikTok, one main band, nine, one, eight, Facebook, you hold a tiger message me before you, or when you add me. So I know that you listen to the podcast. Um, shout out to Bigfoot Crossroads, um, and Matt Knapp, uh, you guys may be hearing me on there pretty soon, so um, you just never know. I, I show up in places where people don't, you know, think they're going to find me. But uh, Twitter, uh, one man band nine one eight, and then if you guys, I know the Moscow Yard Market is coming up. Go follow the Facebook page. Uh, I know my uncle John and my uh, uh, John Mark Tiger and uh, John M Artworks is going to be there, um, and then my uh, my cousin Christy. Uh, Herndon Holland, she'll be there as well. Um, go out and support. Um, I may or may not be there. Just you know, with this new baby, it's just kind of hard to get out. But you know, go check them out, guys. Go, go, go to the Muskogee Yard Market. Um, and I appreciate you guys listening. In. I'll catch you on the next one.